0: Hi everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Roots to STEM, a show where we talk to scientists about the paths they've taken to get where they are today, and the lessons they've learned along the way. I'm your host, Steph Cady. I am super excited about today's episode. Today we're hearing from Dr. Rebecca Shaw, who is the Chief Scientist at the World Wildlife Fund, which is an NGO focused on conservation, climate change mitigation, and wilderness preservation. In this interview, we're going to hear from Rebecca about her career path, including hearing about some of her other jobs at NGOs, which may be of interest to folks listening who are interested in jobs focused on climate change, conservation and sustainability, to just get a sense of what sorts of jobs are out there. And then the thing I enjoyed most about this conversation was hearing her view on how valuable the soft skills that you learn in a PhD are, no matter what career you end up in, but especially when transitioning to careers outside of academia. I left this conversation with Rebecca feeling like I just got a pep talk about my career, so I hope you feel the same way. And with that, please join me in welcoming Rebecca to the show. Thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to talk to you and hear what you have to say, and I think our audience will be super excited because we've never had a non-academic on, well, I know you obviously went to grad school, but you know what I mean, someone who's currently not working (laughs) in academia. So I think this will be really exciting.
1: Yeah, I'm really looking forward to to the conversation, and I'm really thrilled to be the first non-academic.
0: Okay, so we can just start out with who are you and where are you from? Yeah,
1: I'm Rebecca Shaw. I um, am the chief scientist at the World Wildlife Fund, Um, and I live in California. My office is in San Francisco. And, but of course, right now my office is obviously at home because everybody is working at home now. Um, yeah, so that's, that's my-
0: Awesome.
1: That's what occupies my time and my thinking.
0: So what do you do for your job? What does your job entail on the day-to-day and also big picture?
1: Um, so as chief scientist, uh, I for an organization that is massive and global, I oversee um, the science credibility for our strategies and our major initiatives and make sure that they are well measured and also to make sure that we are working with academics to bring the best available science to bear on conservation, climate change, and human health and well-being and the intersection of all three of those. And so I have a small team myself that that, uh, activates a network of scientists around the globe in 100 countries. To make sure that we can do that in multiple different languages in a coordinated way for global outcomes that we seek.
0: Do you speak multiple languages?
1: I do not speak multiple languages. I uh, I am. Um, um, English native English speaker and I am somewhat com- conversational in Spanish and used to be conversational in in uh, Brazilian Portuguese
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and mostly I can still nod and swagger like my Brazilian colleagues but I don't speak as fluently as I would like anymore.
0: <laughs> so where did that I assume you spent some time in Brazil then for Brazilian Portuguese language? Skills? Yes in
1: the Amazon in the Amazon okay. and and it was um, I, I was there in the early 90s Working uh, in deep in the Amazon on a floating raft studying nutrient cycling.
0: Were you there um, as part of your PhD, or was that before?
1: No, that was a that was a research um, job after I graduated from undergraduate, and so I was there with on a combined um, National Science Foundation project with combined between UC Santa Barbara and University of Maryland that was studying nutrient cycling and um, its effects on biodiversity, mostly aquatic biodiversity. And uh, just how it changed in different parts of the season. And at that time, we didn't know a lot about that. And it was incredibly important to know about that kind of carbon nitrogen cycling and its impact on biodiversity and, in order to um, understand what will, would happen when uh, the areas were deforested. And as would have it, when I was down there, at the time I was down there, the lake that we lived on went from being 100% pristine to 70% deforested in sh- just under a year. And so oh, wow. it was a really dramatic change and it was clear that there were big socioeconomic dynamics at play that were pushing uh, very high rates of deforestation. And, and in the end, that's why I went and got a policy degree as I was very concerned as many were about what those socioeconomic policies Oh, what those socioeconomic dynamics were, and what were those policies that were pushing those deforestation rates so high?
0: Mm-hmm. And you got that at Berkeley, correct? Your policy degree, my PhD, and your PhD. yeah,
1: my my my, my uh, master's degree and my PhD were both okay. at UC Berkeley. And
0: were those separate, like continuous after one another, or were they at the same time?
1: They're two separate programs, but they but they uh, but in the same in the same graduate group. So I went to the Energy and Resources Group which at its time was one of the very few interdisciplinary um, PhD master's and PhD uh, programs you could go into. And so my uh, master's is actually in policy, climate policy and biodiversity. And the, my PhD was in uh, the impacts of climate on uh, carbon and nutrient cycling. And the, it was an incredible pro- program to be in. Well, Berkeley is an amazing school and a really diverse in the number of uh, programs and departments it has. But this particular program was drew on faculty from um, most of the different types of schools within Berkeley. And then the students at the energy and resources group would put together their own thesis committee based on an interdisciplinary topic they wanted to work on. And so you could have um, a thesis committee with somebody from sociology, somebody from economics, somebody from the, you know, uh, biology and environmental sciences and er- regional and urban planning or energy, um, energy policy. And so it was really a great, like a Lego puzzle you could put together to create your own PhD. And so that's what I did.
0: That's really cool. So yeah. what did, I'm curious, because I feel like oftentimes as PhDs, we're sort of trained to do one set of things and then your job can end up being very different. So I'm curious like, mm. what your day-to-day looked like during your PhD and then sort of what it looks like now and how you developed new skills as needed to get to do the work that you're doing now.
1: I mean, it's such a great question. So um, I would say I was not well-equipped coming out of a PhD to do the job I do now, mm-hmm. The um, except for, and I say this to everybody, one of the things that you um, we underestimate as um, doctoral candidates or people that are fresh got their phd is you're so deep in your own subject, y- you actually don't really recognize the full array of skills that you actually gained by going through a phd program in terms of critical thinking and analytical skills and presentation skills and your hustle skills like get optimized <laughs> like incredibly. and all those things really help um, you in the next two or three stages of your life because, you need a lot of hustle to make stuff happen, particularly if you're going outside of, particularly if you're going outside of uh, the academics. And those hustle skills are crazy important. There's nobody that works harder than PhD students, really. And so you can go from doing a PhD into the private sector and hustle like crazy. You can go into nonprofit arena, you can go, and you will out, you will outpace everybody just because you have so much stamina for what you learned of being a, as, a, as a PhD student. So those, those soft skills, hustle skills become really important for what you do next. And as long as you have those skills, you can actually focus and, you know, gain the other skills you need. But the the one thing I will say is you have to constantly up up your skills all the time. And every job you get, you need to be really clear that that's a priority because otherwise we we become so obsolete so quickly.
0: I know you've had a few jobs between where you are now and then your PhD. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess could you sort of talk through that trajectory of like what those jobs were and how they brought you to the next job and the next job and then ultimately to your current job?
1: Yeah, the, the one of the one of the things that um, I was really clear about, I was always really interested in working on the environment, and there were these. So the PhD and going down that route really allowed me to um, develop my intellectual skills, whereas I always worked as a um, as a, a in founding or volunteering for or on the board of nonprofits that uh, worked on issues that were really close to my heart. And so these two tracks then, I never thought could actually come together in one job. And so I would continue all my nonprofit work and I would do my academic work. And after I left uh, Berkeley, I went to Stanford and uh, worked on a postdoc there. And it became really clear for a whole host of personal reasons that I needed to uh, do a better job of trying to bring those two parts of my world together, and that's when I applied for um, a fellowship at the Nature Conservancy. After um, the fourth year of postdocing, I had gotten a um, a uh, faculty position, um, but it wasn't. I didn't feel like it was the right fit, and so being able to uh, going, I I was really took a jump in the, and took a really sharp right turn to see if working for an organization like the Nature Conservancy might offer me the opportunity to bring those two sides of myself together into a single focus as opposed to having parallel lives. Mm-hmm.
0: Can you talk a bit more about why the faculty position didn't feel right because I feel like, you know, for a lot of academics that's sort of what we think the pinnacle is is getting a faculty position. And so I imagine turning that down was quite a difficult decision for you to make. It
1: was it was really for for me it was really because you do you do all this work to um, to get this one thing and getting that one thing is so hard and so competitive. And um, I think in its core, I loved the question, I loved learning and I loved the inquiry and I loved answering research questions and I loved, but I didn't, I couldn't find anybody around me that had a life I wanted and it wasn't meaning faculty members, yeah. I, they didn't have uh, the kind of life I wanted. Um, because at that time, you, you remember, it was re- applied re- there, uh, for the work that I was doing in climate. There weren't a ton of jobs yet. There, um, if you went into a, a faculty position, you needed to really focus most on your primary research and you couldn't think more broadly. Mm-hmm. And so you get, you, you get at the time, uh, you get re- funneled into a specific track really that's very narrow very quickly, and um, you couldn't ask the kind of questions readily that I really thought were the most important, which are the broader, more interdisciplinary, more integrative uh, questions. And so there was a reason why there was only one faculty, there was only one, um, you know, very few schools like that. There were very or, or departments like that. There were very few people trained in, in being how to be interdisciplinary, and so. Well, I thought I could bring that into a uh, traditional department, it became clearer and clearer that that wasn't really mm-hmm. um, possible given the teaching loads, given the, given the publishing requirements, given the um, administrative loads, on and on, it was gonna be really hard to have those two pieces of my life to come together mm-hmm. if I stayed in, um, in an academic position. So it was a really difficult decision uh, I definitely cried a lot <laughs> trying to make the decision and it was the best decision I make. And, and I, I'll tell you ever since ever, whenever I was on the precipice of one of these kinds of decisions, it was super, super hard and always the right decision. And I, I sort of feel like, um, you, you, gotta be able to take that dive when you think it's the right thing to do, because otherwise you already know what's wrong for you.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: why go that direction? Yeah. Why not explore at least something else that might be right for you, even if it's not certain?
0: Yeah. Do you think that that sort of dichotomy between the research and the broader picture stuff still exists in faculty positions? Or do you think there's more opportunities for faculty members now? Like, I guess if you were to come into the faculty scene now, do you think things would have potentially been different?
1: Yeah, it's really different now. Mm
0: -hmm. When...
1: You know, so this, you know, I started my master's degree um 25, 20 a oh, long time ago. And climate change was still just the beginning issue. There wasn't there weren't very many people that understood what it what the concept meant. They, they called it global warming back then. Um there wasn't um there there were no technologies being developed. There were nobody, nobody in business, nobody in government, nobody Anywhere except for in academics and uh, some government, um, government departments like NASA or like the Department of Energy were really focused on this as being a an issue way out in the future, and so there just weren't jobs now. You can you can get a degree in an interdisciplinary um, graduate department that focuses on sustainability that knits together food policy and environmental policy and climate all together into one and you can get jobs in in the private sector in finance in um, you know in academics and nonprofits and it is and you can you can actually start companies to do that back then it it, it just wasn't even it. It didn't have that kind of resonance Mm -hmm. in society at large like it does today so i think it's a really different issue um in fact i just think that for you, you may have a different view of this given where you are but i just think for um people coming out of phds with really hard skills and really important soft skills um that there are many more many more things you can do with a phd today than when i came out of my degree
0: yeah okay so we got through the Nature Conservancy, basically. Well, you said you got a fellowship there. And so what were you doing there? And then what happened next?
1: <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I was hired there on a fellowship to um, <clears throat> work on um, science and policy of invasive species, which was, um, which if you cared about biodiversity on the planet was, it, it is a huge issue. It had a lot of attention. Um, when I was Coming out of my postdoc, it has less attention now, because climate change and biodiversity loss is is uh, are such big issues and and um, human health and well-being and and nutrition as it relate and as it relates to food and the food that we're growing. But then invasive species was big, and I was in the job for six months before they hired me to be their director of science. I did that for a number of years, and then I ran the conservation programs in um, the state of California. Where I did a lot with a lot of work at the intersection of science and policy interface, and I learned just constantly gaining new skills. I mean I was I was both technical skills, but also manager managerial skills, and I and again I relied on the training that I got in academics to really go after the theory behind everything understanding the practical applications and understanding the technical and the social pieces of it and how does it actually how do you how can you actually work use different tools and in different contexts to make them work and so for me that kind of training set me up for a life of learning and um in practice that's been really really rich and so i was grateful and this is what i would say is no matter what job you get always keep up your technical skills keep keep, uh, you know, that learning going, but expand your soft skills to like management and coaching and getting the best out of other people you possibly can. Because if one thing is really true is that none of these things, these questions we're addressing, whether it's in biochemistry or genomics or in conservation can be answered by one person it really takes the, the best questions the best delivery is happening in really dynamic um, teams, whether it be lab groups or, you know, teams with, or departments within organ, different organ, organizations or institutions. And as long as you're keeping yourself really uh, highly tuned all the time, then you're, you, then you're a great team member. So it's really about being a great team member once you leave your PhD.
0: Yeah. Do you have recommendations for how to develop those managerial skills or, you know, books that you've read that you really liked or trainings that you've done or anything like that?
1: Um. Yeah, there's, one of the reasons why I I, I, um, harken back over and over again to the academic training is because academic training really teaches you about the theory and then uh, you are forced to think about the practice and the technology associated with that practice and with the theory and testing the theory so when you think about management But if you work in the sciences, you don't really think about managerial science or the fact that people get their PhDs in that and they work in business schools and they work in think tanks and that they do. And there's always new um, thinking that's uh, based on on theory of behavioral uh, psychology or um, the way organizations become their own organisms and their own culture. And there's the sociology and anthropology of that. And so once you get into Looking at understanding on how to be a manager, you can dig deep into that theory, and that same sort of uh, theoretical practitioner will take it directly into practice. And so, it you're trained, as, you know, as a PhD student, to love how those two things come together. And so, I think it's one of those ways in which I've been able to. I find it really exciting because of that academic training to learn about management. So I, I I've taken. Uh, theoretical courses I've taken that really give you the, the basic understanding about how people function, how they make uh, decisions, how different people can be, how you divide, can divide up people into different types of categories based on how they make decisions. But then you can also, also take really practical classes about, okay, here are the tactics about exactly what you do when you have a great employee who is a um, a very high performing but had high demand everywhere mm-hmm. and therefore how do you retain those really high performers when you know they when you know exactly what it is that they need to feel like um there's something bigger than themselves right and so it's it's the exact it's the the academic approach is a lifelong approach and you can go after management after coaching after um, skill development in the same way you've gone after developing your phd topic and and uh, figuring out how to work on a team.
0: Okay, so now I think we're through the Nature Conservancy, and then the next thing was the Environmental Defense Fund. Is that right? That's right. And so, what were you doing there?
1: So uh, I, when I left the so the Nature Conservancy, at the time I left, um, was it was mostly a land trust in the U.S. and um, and it, that was expanding into um, other countries. And so it was, um, it was very focused on um, how you protect spaces on the planet, whether it be, you know, freshwater spaces or terrestrial spaces or marine spaces, and then all the things you needed to do to make sure that you protected those places and that you um, uh, could take away the stresses that were changing those. It was Really, it it was an institution, because of that very protected area of focus, had a difficulty really embracing climate change. And I was a climate change scientist, and, and really, and the urgency to be able to work very directly on climate change was, um, it, I, I was feeling the weight of needing to focus on it. And so I went to the, envir- to the Environmental Defense Fund, which was the organization at the time, Um, still is one of the leading organizations working on climate change mitigation and a lot of what I did there was then to focus on not just climate impacts on land and waters and uh, the resources we care about but also how can natural systems play a role in mitigating climate change and allowing for the adaptation or building resilience against the changing um, climatic impacts and it it was an organization that was in comparison to the nature conservancy it was much smaller probably one tenth the size probably um, around probably a third of the budget more and really focused on policies policy change and market mechanisms to incentivize change it's a very different way of viewing the world and therefore a very different culture and so by going there i It was a very steep learning curve. I learned a ton, gained a bunch of new skill sets, took a bunch of new classes, brought brought along my same skill sets in management and so on and everything I knew about climate and biodiversity and the role of nature in maintaining um, um, a stable climate, but was also able to really think about how um, more systematically about policy, not just for funding conservation, but for actually creating the kind of incentives and change for broader society. Mm To uh, protect biodiversity and to uh, and to um, uh, mitigate climate change or change the direction of greenhouse gas, gas emissions, and it was incredibly effective what it what it did. And so I, I I got deep into that world of market mechanisms and policy mechanisms, both at the national level, at the state level, but also at the international level. And um, it was a a really good change. It took, it made use of a lot of skills, but allowed me to continue to grow uh, in ways that uh, were really beneficial for the kinds of things I was trying to achieve. Mm.
0: So, did that role involve meeting with policymakers or was that like mm-hmm. someone else or were you doing that work directly?
1: No, uh, no, I did that. I did that. Um, and I had staff that did that. I mean, I, I worked, I had um, science staff and policy staff and practice staff, people that actually worked on the ground. And well, a lot of my job was working with academics to again, academics in the kind of disciplines that I would not have worked with otherwise. So in um, in uh, law schools and in schools of government and um, journalists, journalism schools and things like that to just really probe in workshops, how do we create the kind of change? How do we use science? How do we uh, develop the right kind of science-based policies? to implement it how do you do that in a fair and equitable way so that you don't have uh, people that are um that are seriously hurt by a very good policy in the end but how do you think about a transition and um the thinking there was much more uh dynamic and much more systems oriented than what i had come from uh, in my previous job
0: that sounds like a really cool job. <laughs>
1: yeah, it was a really cool job. It was really yeah.
0: cool. So then what brought you to was the next step the World Wildlife Fund?
1: And then the World Wildlife Fund. So um it became really clear um that the world that that um that the the world of top down decision making and policy and decision making wasn't really going to create the kind of change that you needed That top down. The market mechanisms and the policy with the bottom up mm-hmm. so that you need to be tackling the problem, particularly of issues like climate change and biodiversity loss from uh, two different directions, uh, because you have to have communities. And, and people that will steward the long-term policy outcomes long into the future if you're going to be successful at combating the loss of biodiversity or climate change. But you also need the sort of guardrails that uh, market mechanisms and um, international policy, national policy can provide and the kind of incentives and funding structures and so on. And so moving to the World Wildlife Fund was a way for me to be involved in uh, supporting both the top down and the bottom up, in a you know, in an academically rigorous way that drew on uh, theoretical frameworks, uh, on the best available technologies, and on the best practice in an iterative kind of way, so that we could constantly adapt to a um, uh, the things we were trying to achieve to the different cultures in which we were in in which we were trying to achieve them. And it's really remarkable. I mean, the the World Wildlife Fund works in uh, has a secretariat that's based out of Switzerland. We work in 100 different countries. And everywhere we work, we are staffed by uh, people that are of the cultures and the communities uh, in those countries. And we really try hard to get that bottom up right to make make sure that it's a, whatever we're implementing is a cultural fit as well as a scientific fit for the outcomes we're trying to achieve. And I feel like that's the way of the future. I feel the the, the top-down mechanisms um, that were sort of the, the silver bullets of the 80s and 90s policy aren't, don't really fit in the 21st century. So that, that's why I made that shift.
0: Yeah. Do you have any examples of projects that you're working on or you've worked on recently that you could talk about?
1: The uh, the. One example is uh, there's a real focus on um, how the tropical rainforests of the planet need to be hold these irreplaceable stores of carbon. So if you lose them, it will be centuries before we can get them back. not all the carbon in the terrestrial ecosystem or in in, uh, marine and aquatic ecosystems is in the tropics. It just happens to be that tropical rainforests, in particular hold a lot of that carbon, both in the above ground biomass and in the soils. And if you lose that carbon, it's going to be catastrophic for the climate. So, But um, actually developing those kinds of lands and those forests and making use of those resources is a very natural way for um, countries to actually develop themselves. And, and it's the trajectory when countries develop, they, they uh, are very dependent on their natural resources before the, the education allows for a shift to um, uh, different kinds of, of industries, um, technological industries, service industries, and medical industries. and that means that if you're if you're heavily dependent for your economic development on natural resources it means you're going to be using them you're going to lose carbon and this is at a time when we can't afford to lose carbon so how do you help those developing how do you make sure that the economic mechanisms are in place to allow for that carbon to, to be held in those ecosystems long term while making sure that those countries and those communities are made whole? Because of their, because of the opportunity cost of not being able to develop the way we developed, how do you, how do you uh, create a, um, a leapfrog? How do you make sure that that they're compensated appropriately for the store, the, for the stewarding those stores of carbon long term? And these are real important. These are very important conversations that we're having um, right now at an international scale uh, because the opportunity cost for developing nations is is so so large. Um, And so there are mechanisms that are, uh, financial mechanisms that are being put in place that are being delivered by um, multilateral banks, by uh, uh, by other financing institutions, and there's a lot of money that's flowing to developing countries for um, maintaining the carbon in these ecosystems. And making sure that the community is getting its needs met at the same time. Mm-hmm. So we're actively working out what that looks like, and making sure that the communities are front and center in those decisions, as and not the end recipient of of um, a mandate that won't, doesn't make sense for them. It, it's it's really interesting mm-hmm. whether the money is coming from from big banks or uh, big foundations or big corporations. It has to work really well with communities around the globe, and that, that's going to look different almost every place it touchdown mm-hmm. touches down.
0: Have you seen the movie, um, the new one that just came out, Don't Look Up? Mm, on I,
1: yeah. <laughs> um, it's very enjoyable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's really a fun movie. I, I mean, depressing in some ways, but telling a tale of, of um, you, you know, a, a tale of fear in a very funny way. And it was very funny. Yeah,
0: yeah, it was really good. But I feel like there is this sentiment of... Crisis about the climate, which I think is justified. But I'm wondering, sort of, are there things that give you hope?
1: Well, like, what we were talking about before, gives me a lot of hope. Which is when when I started down this path uh, to focus on climate and biodiversity, nobody knew what either of those things were. And now, you know, the World Economic Forum just um, just um, released its. Global risk report and climate change and biodiversity loss are in the top, you know, two of the top three issues for the largest economies and the biggest corporations in the world to pay attention to. So, a lot of the all the so folks in business, folks in finance, in academics, in um, everyday society are talking about these issues. So, it means that the awareness is so much greater. Now, whether that's going to translate, so I find a lot of hope in that awareness. I find hope that people coming out of their masters and PhDs today have many, many more options than I had in terms of jobs because there are so many jobs and so many different kinds of institutions that focus on the environment, focus on climate, focus on biodiversity. So I find that very helpful, a lot, much greater awareness. What if that all translates into the uh, kind of solutions at a systemic scale that we need in order to avert um, a catastrophic outcome. I don't know, but that's what I'm working on every day. And I'm just glad to have so many more colleagues working on that every day with me. And so I don't go to dinner parties and people shut down when I start talking because almost everybody knows what I work on now, yeah. not because of who I am, but because the issues are, are are that important. And so I find a lot of hope in that. One thing, what, you know, I um, gave a... I, have, I always give um, gifts to my staff. And this year I gave uh, everyone on my staff oven mitts that said, that said they're just really beautifully quilted and they say, burn dinner, not the planet. And then and then I say, <laughs> so everybody loves those because everybody wants oven mitts. I mean, really, truly like good oven mitts are hard to find. And then I also included uh, in those gifts, uh, this poem by uh, a copy of the poem by Amanda Gorman called um, Earthrise. And I really recommend not only um, listening to her recite it because you can find it on YouTube, it's beautiful, but also uh, downloading it and reading it a number of times and really um, getting deep into her messages in that poem. And the reason why I'm recommending it, the reason why I gave it uh, to everybody on my staff along with the other is that it um, is so filled with hope. And she, in, in a poetic, way with a really dynamic cadence gets after the urgency but the the very real fact that so many people are working on this issue that it's doable now Mm -hmm. it's really doable we're all in this together we're on this small planet uh, zooming through space so we only have one and so she talks in the very beginning of the poem about the first astronauts um, in space seeing the earth rise over the moon instead of a moonrise or some, you said the earth rise. And then she calls this movement that's happening right now an earth rise. And so she connects this sort of, from the time we figured out, we were just a very small orb in, in a very, very huge universe. And we could see it visually to this realizing that this is our home and we need to do something about it. And there aren't other planets we can go to. And so she calls this earth rise and it's really so hopeful. And so it's people like, uh, you know Amanda Gorman in a in a kind of discipline that's so different from my own. Who's speaking about this in a way that resonates with me and resonates with everybody I gave the poem to, and it's, it's quite it's quite extraordinary. So that's what gives me hope. People like Amanda Gordon, people like you.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I will have my to nephews. check out that poem. <laughs> I'll include it yeah. in the, the show notes for this podcast. I'll include a link. Switching gears a little bit, what would your advice be for someone who is interested in science and particularly someone who is getting a PhD and then wants to transition and go into nonprofit work um, or just sort of any non-academic track?
1: Yeah, you know, I I think the first thing is um, seek out people who um, can give you really good Uh, perspective on the direction that you think you want to go right so and I would say uh, really listen to your gut about what makes you the kinds of activities and the kinds of things that make you happy does lab work make you really happy does that discovery process make you super happy does um, you know leading big teams or being a part of a team what like what's both big picture you want um, in your career and what is the sort of day-to-day look like that you love and just think about that because I, I again I think when you it, oftentimes you you go to school and you begin to get tracked in one place and you kind of don't see your options and you just keep going along one track even though it's not quite right or well, really ask yourself the question also I think that the the um, more now than ever you're expected to to, the, there is an expectation that you will change careers, and you will do different things. So think really clearly about your hard skills and your soft skills all the time, and how to best prepare yourself for the next five years. What's really difficult with academics is that you're preparing yourself for 40 or 50 years of the same job. And that is not the world we live in anymore. And so, and while you do get job security that way, it's not it may not be the happiest place for a lot of people yes. for forty years. That's a long time, and so and you it, make sure that you can see or ask a lot of questions of your mentors or people within academics about what that life's like and if you want it. But seek out uh, seek out people outside of your um, of your uh, trajectory you're on that have jobs that you think would be interesting to have, and then for for nonprofits. Um, it's really good to, those soft skills are super important. It's really important to be optimistic and but to be hard-nosed about it and have some really clear technical skills that uh, connect with the, the issues that the nonprofit is working on. And so you may need to gain some new skills. You may need to do some volunteering. You may need to take an internship or two um, and uh, add on uh, another degree if you can and if you can't. Um, you may need to get a job doing what you need to do while you volunteer, but I would, I would see yourself as a project in motion all the time, you can set out five year goals, you can move yourself towards those goals, both in, in technical skills and hard skills and constantly ask yourself what is it you want next, what is it you want next, and that doesn't mean you would change jobs or change um, direction every five years, it just means you'll at least stay alive and, and uh, vibrant as you are now as a PhD student, asking those the same kind of questions. But in the end, you may still choose to stay in academics because that's the exact right dynamic place for you, mm-hmm. right? It's no matter what you do, asking yourself those questions, going through that inquiry process, listening to your gut is better no matter what you choose to do. So don't allow, don't allow yourself to feel like you don't have options. Really look and think and talk to people about what your options might be before you choose um, the your, your path even if it's the same thing you would have been doing
0: yeah so what is your five-year plan look like now what do you envision for yourself over the next five years yeah
1: you know it's interesting because I've been at uh, the world wide Life fund now for it'll be six years um, in March and I um, I came into the wWF to Uh, build a science program and I built it and it's been really fun and now I'm actually rebuilding it to design it to do something different and so my five-year plan is at WWF um, uh, where we were really focused on uh, developing the, the science to underpin the practice around the globe and the global policy those global policies are now being implemented whether it be Um, through the Climate COP or the Biodiversity COP. We'll see what happens at the Biodiversity Conference in April in China. But we did a lot of work early on to build the foundations for that. Now we're really shifting to implementation. And so um, I'm stepping up right now in a lot of the hard technical skills of uh, spatial analytics and, and machine learning and technology, and also social sciences so we can be better at connecting the two for implementation across the globe and measuring our, 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 um, our outcomes more effectively and more efficiently so that we can meet some of the very um, steep targets that we've set for ourselves in 2030 and 2050. So my five-year has me retooling and retooling my team and, and our networks of external academic partners very significantly, but it, again, it's a really exciting time. Yeah. In fact, I, this morning I was I was sketching out what the team would need to look like and what we'll need to do when we're going into a retreat in about three or four weeks to talk about it. And it keeps it keeps life really interesting when you're asking those questions all the time.
0: Yeah. So I'm curious, both because I'm curious, but also thinking about people who might be listening to this who are interested in going into conservation. What does that potential team look like for you? Like what sorts of skills are going to be really useful for people that are entering the job market and want to go into conservation work?
1: Uh, um, so the conservation, it, it's funny. Um, I was hired into con- conservation as a climate person back when nobody in conservation was working on climate. And so it's, I would say it is hard to know exactly what the skills are that going to that are going to be required in these different institutions as the world changes, as as issues arise, um, and the, they can dominate, and different kinds of technologies can dominate, and then fall away pretty quickly. I, I would say that um, I think first and foremost, it's really important to do what you love, like like both both. And that that brings you a lot of satisfaction, both in terms of thinking what you can achieve in doing it, and then also on a daily basis. So if that's conservation, um, that means that um, there almost any kind of skill set is useful now, and it depends and it's choosing the right organization for that skill set. I mean, I work with people who are who have got degrees in finance and in business, and and people who work on agricultural supply chains, and people who um, people who uh, have have gotten very technical mathematical degrees in and worked at technology organizations or corporations. So it's really a broad base, but because the issues are so broad now. And so I would say that almost anything uh, can be made a conservation uh, job, any discipline can be made into a conservation job, but it's really hard to Hit that right job at the right time, mm-hmm. and so thinking broadly about what you want to achieve and going to work for an organization to try and achieve it. The, the other thing I would say is it, it's it is often frustrating who are for people who are really skilled to try and get a job at a conservation organization because there aren't that many jobs, and when you come into an organization, you t- typically get a job that is far beneath your skill set, mm-hmm. and sometimes that's what you have to do and prove yourself and then you can move quickly through organizations once you've proven yourself. And so I would say it's also really important to be humble and to have a five-year plan so that you don't get frustrated by what happens in that first year once you do get a conservation job or once you do get those interviews. And I would also say interview a lot. It's amazing if if you um, apply for things and really give yourself, um, see the interview process as a discovery process and as a process for you to better learn um what's what's the priority for you to better learn about what your skill set is and what your marketability market marketability is and also you learn how to be um to interview so that when you you actually are interviewing for the exact right job you're really good at it because mm-hmm. interviewing is a whole nother it's a whole nother discipline <laughs> how to really interview yourself interview really well mm-hmm. and how to how to be ready and prepared for those interviews and to put your make yourself uh help people understand your whole package and not just little bits of you.
0: Mm-hmm. What advice do you have for women in particular who aspire to be in the sciences or also be in leadership positions? Um
1: I, I, the it's funny because the the advice I would give changes over time. But um I, I would just and make sure that you 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 have a group of people that um you can turn to and talk to because uh, when you feel like something might be associated with gender uh, gender issues or not so that you can think through it and talk through it because otherwise there's so much you have to deal with depending on your frame of mind you can see everything as a gender issue or you won't see enough things as a gender Mm -hmm. issue right and If you can balance it right, you can hold the confidence you need to hold in order to push through the toughest issues. The I love that right now. The that in the last ten years, we're talking more consistently and more regularly about what are the types of things that um, that uh, different uh, populations of people have to deal with, whether it's a gender issue or or, um, an issue having to do with the color of your skin or your uh your um cultural origin or your religion we're we're having these conversations in a much more structured way than we ever have before so i think it's easier to deal with but it's not going to be easy for women or for people of color and being able to have a tribe that you can turn to over and over and over again to talk with about this to balance it while you hold your confidence and continue to move forward is really really important and to know when the line's been crossed and exactly what to do about it Mm -hmm. The the other thing is, um, I, you know, I'm in the phase of my career where I really, well, early on, I really depended on uh, key mentors to bounce off, do should I worry about this? Do I need to worry about this? Is this a real issue? Is this somebody I should work with? I've heard about this. What do you think? And then I'm able to do that in a really fair and constructive way for more women now as well. And I see that as a really important part of the way I do my work and how I need to uh, give back to uh, you know, to pay it forward, <laughs> or right because um, it's really hard to know sometimes um, whether what you're experiencing is a is is an effort to undermine you because of who you are, or because somebody's just a jerk, mm-hmm. or both. And I think having a good group of people to be able to talk about these issues with really has really helped me over 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 the course of my career.
0: Okay, this one's a slightly esoteric question, but what are some of the like habits and mindsets and things that you think have helped you be successful so far in your career?
1: Um, I've always uh, been more successful because because oftentimes, you, you know, you have big successes and you have setbacks too. But when I when I find that um, I can remain positive. it helps me keep my team positive and it helps my team stay creative. and um, and I think that's really, really important. There will always be setbacks and the, and you will always have difficult times. but to the extent that you can weather those in and um, you know lead your team members in a, through a constructive uh, conversation about how to move through those, it's really it's a great skill set to have. Yes. Um, I think that the times where I haven't done as well is that t- those times when um, I'll have that internal voice telling me that it's not going to work or it's, it's the, the, the issue too big or you're not going to be able to, to uh, hit that really big goal. But the bottom line is you, you need to set far reaching goals and you need to really go after them and you need really good teams to do it. And you need to create a create a positive and creative space in order to do it because otherwise you really can't achieve what you think you what you set out to do mm-hmm. and so and other people really want to be around um around people who can make those kinds of things happen because they're a positive force for change so i, I think that that's what i would say is that staying positive and creative. Uh, staying positive helps you stay creative, mm-hmm. which helps you be a great team team member, which increases the likelihood of you achieving what you set out to do.
0: Yeah. Do you have any outlets? Because I imagine there are still days where things just aren't going the way you want, and it's just like, oh yeah. Ugh, God. And so do you have outlets for like how you deal with that so that you can sort of get back on the track of having a positive mindset?
1: Yeah. Um, so it's really important for me to uh, cook, um, to exercise and to, to get out and in green spaces or blue spaces if it's ocean, all that, all those. So uh, all of that every day, really, really important. And so I'm not um, the kind of person who can work for 12 hours straight and maintain a high level of creativity and productivity and a positive outlook. Mm -hmm. So being able to go offline, stay, um, you know, be really grounded in Uh, The physical world through exercise and through being outside really important through the the tactical and also the physical world cooking. And the last thing is, I get really excited about um, art and how people are artists who do either movies or sculptures or paintings or or performance art, how they pull together the different pieces of the universe to, to to but, uh, have a product that people are viewing and s- help the other people see the world differently. And so that's another real creative output for me. I'm not an artist myself, but I'm a big appreciator of the arts. And I love to be able to, I, I, I don't, it's like almost no foods are off the table and almost no art is off the table from my bricks because there's all this expression that you can learn from.
0: <laughs> I guess the last thing is if people wanted to reach out to you or stay up to date with your work or the work that the World Wildlife Fund is doing, What's the best way for people to do that?
1: Um, so I post a lot on LinkedIn. So it, LinkedIn is really the pro- pro- professional and, and then uh, my Twitter account is Dr. Rebecca Shaw. And so people can follow me and I'll follow back because, again, it's this constantly being reciprocal and the information I consume and how I put it out there is really important in that l- lifelong learning and so happy happy to have to to have more kinds of people to follow as well
0: okay thank you so much for doing this thanks everyone for listening to another episode of roots to stem and a huge thank you to rebecca for taking the time out of her very busy schedule for this interview if you're enjoying the show please leave us a rating and review where you're listening if you or someone you know has an interesting career or journey into a STEM career, please let us know. We'd love to talk to them. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Roots to Stem Pod or email us at Roots to Stempodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode.